Why, Honita Slacks, this is Kim Senclip Harvey, and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 3 of The Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist. On this week's episode, I'll be sharing with you three of my recent blog posts, all related to my conscious and deliberate decision to center Indigenous love and joy over Indigenous trauma and pain. I'll also be sharing with you a microfiction piece that's a sort of an auxiliary component to my next artistic ceremony, Break Horizons, a rocking Indigenous justice story. On May 17th, 2020, on my blog, which you can find at www.kimsenkliparvi.com, I wrote one of my most popular posts entitled, No Indigenous Trauma Porn. The representations of Indigenous people in media is complex, because on one hand, we're just so excited to see ourselves represented. But then when we look into the piece, we can sometimes see that the representation is actually perpetuating and upholding imperial oppression. And I think we urgently need to be making art that disturbs this level of imperialism. My metric for work that disrupts imperial structures of conditioning is after I engage with the piece, I ask, do I feel nourished by it and activated to participate in the emancipatory indigenous revolution? Or does this work trigger trauma and propel people into draining conditioned imperial responses like feelings of anxiety, depression, hopelessness, and hurt? Work that triggers and feeds pain by regurgitating and re-embodying the trauma with no new perspective, perpetuates white, per- per- perpetuates white supremacy, and inhibits our agency to heal and live outside of colonial oppression. I don't think it's revolutionary, and I'm not here for imperial designed and conditioned art. It's super boring to me. It provokes indigenous pain while supplying some gross level of catharsis for me or white people. Without illuminating and offering the process of transformation of transforming pain, it just causes more. And because imperial subservient art makes white people feel less guilty and totally undisturbed, people get awarded and supported because under the watch of the state, they are being good little Indians. There needs to be a significant culture shift in what narratives and portrayals get celebrated, with white juries curated by imperial institutions with predominantly imperialist leaders. My fear is that this trauma-centered era we are in will continue because it is what the state desires, supports, and champions. When I see indigenous trauma porn art, it's usually a result of one of these. One, subservience to colonialism. Two, unaddressed trauma by the creator or three, egoic creative practice. It's why our artists were taken care of and trained from a very young age. We knew its power. We knew stories were powerful. We knew its impact on the community and we wouldn't let a spirit that was not well try to emit and embody our healing practice because our art is our medicine. Indigenous artistic creation has always been about honoring a process of healing and transformation. I engage with and celebrate artists who've unlocked this knowing in their blood and usually outside of the settler gaze are permeating healing with their practice. 
We are in urgent need of artists that activate and mobilize our peoples outside the paradigm of indigenous suffering. You don't have to tap dance for the white man anymore. They can't afford and don't deserve indigenous tears and pain. It feeds them and not us. And if you're selling it, you're not getting compensated enough. It is my experience that the people illuminating and embodying the transformations from trauma and sharing this power are the actual artists leading the indigenous revolution. Now, this requires a lot of personal healing, decolonization, and troubling one's own participation in imperial colonialism. And because I want the next generation to unshackle themselves from imperial metrics of permissible and celebrated art, I offer a little how-to, quote, an easy guide to not write and create indigenous trauma porn. Illuminate the transformation of the pain. So the energy of the trauma powerfully fuels joy and love and ignites healing for the community. (laughs) That's kind of it. And I'll say it again. I offer that you should illuminate the transformation of the pain. So the energy of the trauma powerfully fuels joy and love which ignites healing for the community yes bearing witness to the pain is necessary to heal from trauma but we don't need to go into great detail with our public art to do that what we need to see is the powerful transformation of it so we promote healing and not trigger our community members and sustain and perpetuate indigenous pain I will add, there will be lots of community members who have and will mistake indigenous trauma porn art for witnessing because the imperial conditioning has permeated our notions and understanding of healing. But know that this re-experiencing trauma in art is not healing. Our ceremonies have been under attack and so forcibly removed that imperialists have swapped meaningful ceremonial healing for state-approved notions of healing. And not all community members, not all writers, directors, and creators are conscious of this. What we're actually encountering when we hear people respond positively to indigenous trauma porn is community members who are in great pain, who've been neglected, and have yet to have their pain and traumatic experiences witnessed and transformed. Like this momentary excitement we get when we see ourselves in art. They see their pain in the art and a micro but imperially structured witness ceremony occurs. Something in the blood goes, oh, I remember this feeling, this witnessing. But enacting it within your art is not safe or healthy because there is no sustained support. And I believe it to be incredibly unethical and actually anti-Indigenous. As an Indigenous artist working today, if you have not investigated, researched, and or are not dealing with your own trauma, or we do not deeply understand how trauma works, I think it's reckless to be creating. Healing is an ongoing journey. I will be healing until I return to the earth, but by going on this journey, I'm able to consciously and safely separate my experiences from my art. I am able to consult and be in good relations with the community, to hold myself accountable and work with elders and oppressed community members to ensure that the work I create is for healing and spiritual nourishment. Now I fail often, and believe you me, I get that trauma porn is super seductive. It's so lucrative. And the imperial audience is large. And I get tempted. Ooh, I get tempted. But remember, it's a trap. It might heal you temporarily. 
But I ask, should the community have to endure the painful and ongoing triggering of your art piece so you can heal? The real artistic innovation for me is the artists who are honoring their experiences and who have the capacity to transform the energy to permeate love, joy, and resistance, not at the expense of the community's health. Artists like Chief Ladybird, Carlene Harvey, Lisa Jackson, and of course my idol, Taika Waititi. Be well, slacks. Watch out for the colonial trauma porn traps and may your artistic expressions nourish the community. Deep love. Kim. Hashtag say no to indigenous trauma porn. How do I say this more than what I just said? Stop writing indigenous trauma porn. Stop awarding indigenous trauma porn. Stop resourcing indigenous trauma porn. And to indigenous people, stop. Just stop. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. The attention I want to bring to in this kind of uh, post chat around this blog is the fact that the trauma in everyone's life occurs. Occurs. That's, that's a truth. That's something that a lot of stories, uh, whether it be TV, film, theater, novels, you know, creative nonfiction, fiction are all based on, you know, dramatic and unforeseen set of circumstances and events which are usually really high stakes and have an impact on the speaker, author, characters, individuals engaging with this dramatic incident. A lot of the time it can be trauma. I'm not saying that these things don't exist. What I'm telling and what I'm sharing and what my deepest desire <laughs> is, is that we stop selling it at the event level. It's like a car crash and just that being it. There's nothing innovative about it. To me, there's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing artistic. There's nothing inventive. What we actually need to be focusing on is this transformation. In Kamloopa, these women were not um, people who had not experienced trauma we just didn't center it because <laughs> to be honest especially right now we can just turn on the tv we can read the news we can look at our you know friends colleagues and community members real lived experiences and see very intense dramatic traumatic experiences occurring and i don't believe that is what is quote artistic excellence i don't believe that is what has meaningful artistic impact i don't believe that is what is real in innovative artistic story creation i also think there are major ethical major ethical issues with just staging just filming just showcasing indigenous trauma I've said it before, but if you just show us in that way, where we are these victims who uh, endure pain, and that is the only slice of experience you share with us, 
it normalizes violence against indigenous people and i got a big fucking problem with that there are a bunch of plays and books and movies where it's like oh my god that was so well done that was so well done that was so amazing and to me that lacks a, a rigorous critical analysis of what that art artistic creator actually gave us i jokingly say i could write an indigenous trauma porn piece you know in half a day i you know some event happens, somebody doesn't have the skills to deal with it. Pain, 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 uh, violence, oppression, trauma porn, no real resolve, end of story. It's not, it's not exciting, it's super boring to me, it's super, it lacks of innovation. The boringness is in the creative practice. This is not to diminish people's real lived experiences, I understand that. But why do we feel the need to constantly, constantly center trauma and pain as a story instead of indigenous power, resilience, and ability? That's what I'm interested in. That's what I think society needs right now. And I really have also in process ethical questions around people selling narratives about potentially real experiences of pain without engaging all the participants within that. Because to me, and there's a lot of discussion, you know, on Twitter around who's it for? Who is this art for? Because it's not for me. And I'm a, I'm an Indian. It's not for my mama. It's not for anybody who's endured violence. And what I've talked about in this post was that people may think it's for them because they say, that's me, that's my story. But I've seen it happen doing trauma shows. People get stuck in the fact that they are their pain. And when artists don't provide the transformation of their powerful abilities, they get confused or we actually sort of, artists can tend to manipulate victims of trauma, survivors of trauma, for them to believe that they are just their pain. And again, I have problems with that. I'm excited. I follow work of people who take that pain, take that trauma, and are, have the capacity, the know-how, and the healing to transform it, to offer us up something new that they created, a perspective, an idea, a pedagogy, uh, a practice, a ceremony. What is the new thing you created with your art? Because if you're just capturing a piece of your pain, I don't think that's actually art. I could go on and on about why I think trauma porn is a state tactic to keep indigenous people at trust, oppressed. And you know what, maybe I'll take a sec to talk about this. Governing bodies, juries, artistic organizations, you know, film boards, theatrical juries, the Canada Council, I question these juries' metrics, them primarily being state-funded, why we continue to fund ind Indigenous trauma pain. It's getting a bit gross. It's getting a bit fetishy. It's actually getting pornographic. And I question jury members who just tick the box and say, Indigenous creator, Indigenous story, end of story. I think us as Indigenous artistic creators need to be more conscious, deliberate, and acknowledge how our work 
really impacts the normalization of pain against people and how that is funded and intersects with the state desire to keep indigenous people oppressed and in pain. I work very hard because comedy, I've said it before, is way harder to write than drama. Comedy is difficult and we'll get into that in the last blog I'll read to you. But I'm very conscious that I don't write a little trauma porn piece because that's what not our that's not what our people need and that's what the state wants. And I want to make people laugh and I want to make people feel transformative. I want our people I want to make people sure they feel powerful because everybody is powerful, but it's state systems of imperial oppression that make us feel that we can't live in joy. Joy is resistance. Rest as resistance, indigenous love as an act of protest. That's what I'm interested in. And that's where I think true artistic practitioners and indigenous leaders are working within. Hashtag say no to indigenous trauma porn. On May 15th, 2020, I wrote a blog post entitled Indigenous Mysticism, Never Magic. I wrote, I use mysticism and not magic when speaking about my work as a storyteller because one is rooted in sensorial experience and the other is a fabrication. I'm conscious of what concepts and ideologies I use when speaking about spirit and heart work especially with non-Indigenous peoples because imperialists have been attacking Indigenous epistemologies, our ways of thinking, since their arrival. Magic goes back to the Magoi, who were Persian tribes serving a monarchy. The origin is about a group of people. Mysticism's etymology goes back to the Greeks and is rooted in the concept to initiate and quote induct. Mysticism's genesis is grounded in process. Magic is used to categorize indigenous ontologies as fictional myths and produce product-based tricks. When you look into this ideology, it's about a sleight of hand, facades, the quote, seemingly supernatural. And that is not what my Salish spiritualism and story creation is. It's never magic for me, and it's deaf, never magic realism. Mysticism is about engaging and honoring the transformational process of our infinite relational cosmic work. It can be understood as relational knowings that go beyond cognitive comprehension. Unlike magic, where the structural device is founded in manufacturing alterations, mysticism is a part of nature's laws and universal realities that induct transformations through beingness. Indigenous mysticism is about my exploration and relational participation in realms and dimensions that dive into the inner space within our spirits, which are inextricably connected to the cosmos. It's not metaphorical, it's not a concoction, it's the honoring of our universal interconnectedness. It's a conscious ritual that respects our experiences as the infinite living in the ether components, essences, and beings we relationally conjure and channel with the universe. The Stanford Encyclopedia says, quote, typically mystics, theistic or not, see their mystical experience as a part of a larger undertaking aimed at human transformation and not as the terminus of their efforts. 
quote, mysticism, mysticism is best thought of as a constellation of distinctive practices, discourses, texts, institutions, traditions, and experiences aimed at human transformation, end quote. Mystical has been in many ways dogmatically entrenched with Western religion, but when you trouble that imperial oppression and reclaim the notion of mystics, we can see extraordinary sovereign power in this ideological truth. Indigenous mysticism is foundational to my indigenous nation's cultural constitution. It becomes the foundation for all our relations. There are many spiritualists and theorists who speak to this act of consciously conjuring and honoring our connectivity. And I think it's imperative to understand to respect indigenous ontologies. Some, practitioner, some practitioners use the term awareness, presence, and consciousness. Bernard Ginn, a scholar of spirituality specializing in mysticism, has said, quote, even for people who may not have any religious commitment of their own, a study of the great mystics can reveal something about human creativity and genius, end quote. I find his specificity when it comes to mystical relationism pertinent. Quote, McGinn argues that, quote, presence is more accurate than, quote, union, since not all mystics spoke of union with God, and since many visions and miracles were not necessarily related to union. I believe he's rooting the act of honoring connectivity in a state and not a formal affinity, and I appreciate that distinction because it reflects nature's and universal orders omnipresent beyond the human species' ability to be conscious of these things. Eckhart Tolle says, quote, at its core, presence is awareness. Nothing real ever changes. At the heart of everything is a timeless, eternal sense of beingness. This isness is universal energy, the very fabric of energy that comprises everything that exists. Since you exist, you are already and always will be a part of this timeless essence. When we are talking about presence, we're talking about the recognition of this fact. Presence then reflects your own awareness of your true eternal essence. And Dr. Lindsay Lachance says, quote, presence is the notion of honoring the timelessness of people's connections to our ancestors. Presencing is a practice that activates moments of resurgence through allowing one's heart, mind, and body to reconnect with ancestral and spiritual knowledge. All of these understandings address the very real connectivities to people, elements, beings, and essences that bond us beyond the present moment. They go beyond tangible Western notions of, quote, proof. They acknowledge the reality of beingness that honors our relations with the universal infinite. This is indigenous mysticism. This is the paradigm and ideological truisms that I create from. I offer my stories as inductions into exploring our relational connectivity, focused on nourishing the cosmic bonds between us and the infinite universe across time, worlds, and dimensions that honor and ignite the erotic nature of what it means to be alive. I've been deep into writing and researching for Break Horizons, which involves a lot of astrophysicism and indigenous mysticism. I've recognized these cultures and ontologies have a lot in common. I believe if an elder with our creation stories and indigenous scientific knowledge sat down with a theoretical physicist, it would be wild. 
imperial scientists working at the quantum level, those theorizing about the events before the Big Bang, have the deepest humility to say, I don't know, because nobody does. This space is where Western science and indigenous mysticism can and does exist with respect to one another. It's been utterly joyful to be researching and working in because it's an area where Western theories cannot oppress and dismiss indigenous ways of being. It feels peaceful here, not being under constant ideological attack. It's a space where we are bearing witness to beliefs, possibilities, and realities, and I'm so grateful for the experience. When you're in the realities of universal theorizing, you know it's not fiction, it's definitely not magic. It's a meeting of two worlds to collaboratively create and explore mystical science. Indigenous mysticism is rooted in indigenous intelligence and technologies relative to Western science like theoretical physics and astrophysicism, and we'd never call quantum mechanics and we'd never call quantum mechanics white people magic. I may use magic in executing a theater production, but the narratives never are. It's indigenous mysticism, culturally grounded in Salish truths. It is protocol and my humble contributions to our ceremonial evolutions, and it's an honor to get to participate in this cosmic weaving. With deep, mystical love, Kim. Understanding how I write and creating ideological frameworks that have this kind of encircling feeling to a ceremony, play, you know, TV piece I write or story is incredibly imperative for me feeling confident, comfortable, and urgently curious and energetic to engage with a piece understanding the difference between mysticism and magic for me with my Salish understanding was incredibly necessary and continues to be as I write Break Horizons, a rocking indigenous justice ceremony. A lot of the time I find imperial or western observers of indigenous art want to call it magic. They want to call it myth. They want to call it fiction. They want to make sure that the foundation and the paradigm and the framework they create before they enter into the piece is to know that my way of seeing the world is correct. My science, my technologies, my cultural heritage and understandings of the world, my ontologies are the metric for real and not real. And I don't think, I, I don't think people understand that that's white supremacy. That's non-indigenous people oppressing a way of seeing the world, oppressing ideologies onto indigenous and in this instance, my Salish understandings of the world. It's so incredibly important for people engaging with art that are, are an artistic creators who are working outside of the imperial creative practice and paradigm to figure out, to do your due diligence, to understand the paradigm and the ontologies of the artistic practitioners and creators. Because if you don't, it's like using the wrong map 
for a piece of land that you're on. It's like using the wrong picture and cookbook guide and being like, you know, that episode when Rachel put, I don't know, beef in a dessert. It's not going to work out or it's not going to live up to the expectations you have. And it actually reduces the art piece itself. It forces it into something that it is not. And that's really artistically frustrating and a level of white violence against BIPOC practitioners functioning outside of imperial paradigms. For me, living in this space where particle physicists and astrophysicists and Western scientists who are talking about the big bounce, the big bang, collapsing theory, multiverse, string theory, actually sound a lot like a lot of our elders and go back to a lot of creation stories that have mountain people, cosmic people, sky women, um, entities that came from the cosmos. And they have a humility, Western scientists working at that astrophysicist level, that quantum level, to say we don't know. And that, that humility is why I love working in the genre of indigenous, uh, indigenous futurism, uh, mystical indigenous science, and where break lives. Because I don't have to run up against ideology saying you can't or that's proven wrong in a Western world. The area where my indigenous Salus futurism is living is meeting a lot of scientists and theologists and ideologists and philosophers who humbly say, we just don't know. And that feels very peaceful to me. I do wanna say that we use magic in the execution of a theater production, there are a lot of sleight of hands in the way that we stage a piece, but it's very important for people to understand that the narratives are never magic, they're never false, they're never, never magic realism, because I think that's a super Western way of seeing it. They are my Salish ontological truths, and I use this blog and I use this podcast so that people, when they come to the pieces, they can do everything. I've made enough offers for them to come and enter into the world, and with break, which I'll continue talking about over this season and on my blog, it really is about this timeless sense of beingness that goes beyond space, that goes beyond time, that has this eternal essence of being connected to the fabric of the universe but i'm not gonna get into that just yet because uh i've got a whole blog talking about how our actions actually warp change and impact the fabric of the cosmos please re-listen to this make sure when you go to non uh uh, people working outside of the like Western imperial paradigm, you understand the frameworks of the world that they create. You understand that your white way of seeing the world is most likely not going to be the same ideologies and understandings and ontologies that they are. And it is your responsibility to go in there even beforehand and to figure out what is it, how is it they are creating these relationships and these events because if you do do that you're going to have a really powerful experience
on April 19th, 2020, on my blog, I wrote a post called The Act of Comedy. I wrote, comedians will never come correct all of the time. It's an impossible ask because comedy lives on the edge of appropriate. And appropriate is a living and ever-evolving edge for every person and society. It's constantly moving. Engaging with comedy demands us to enter it with this radical, responsive understanding. Many comedians I respect have said ignorant and racist shit, but, you know, I think we all can understand, especially in this moment right now, we all say ignorant and racist shit, and I don't throw all of you away. It's my firm belief that we cannot do away with a comedian for a bad or distasteful joke. I pulled at least three jokes from the Kamloops premiere onto Kamloops uh, territory, and then at least another one for the Vancouver premiere. To be funny, to write comedy, you have to deeply understand drama to then be able to undermine it. It's literally a process of pushing it and then pulling it. Disagree with the joke, absolutely disagree. That keeps us all accountable and makes the genre greater. Please don't be handing out life sentences and banishment for jokes. Yes, we should be doing our very best to not position people for harm within our stories. Believe you, me, I get, get, get that and work for that. But we must fully understand, grasp and honor the acts of courage comedians have by just entering the ring of comedy. Comedy leverages stories in a way drama does not. And I'm gonna say it, Comedy is way harder to write than drama. It just is. And anyone saying otherwise has never written a funny joke (laughs) and or they think they're funny and they are not. Comedy requires a multi-layered comprehension and consciousness to embark on a deeply complex journey. And that without a doubt will be filled with mistakes. Comedians are playing in the dark because compelling comedy is illuminating perspectives not yet seen. So we are going to trip you throw a person out for a bad joke. We lose the opportunity to investigate the topic and perspective they offered via their work's illumination. That has to be appreciated and respected. Plus, responding with binary expulsivity is overly simplified and attempts to reduce a genre to something it cannot be. Good comedy, done by rigorous practitioners, is never simple. Comedy as a genre is an action and it is multifaceted and our responses need to be as well. I study comedy, so I watch a lot of it and I disagree with a lot of it, but I don't banish people for it. Cancel cancel culture in comedy for a bad joke is way too high. If we were to use comparative analysis for the form, it would be like canceling a writer for a bad sentence, paragraph, or chapter, and that's a shitty and reductive comparison because the forms are wildly different. We have to manage our expectations accordingly for the genre. I never go into watching a set thinking I won't be offended. Actually, I never go into art thinking I won't be offended. (laughs) I go in with the radical understanding that a comedian's job is to go to the edge, to disrupt and stir the shit most don't have the courage to touch. Comedians go to the edges so others don't have to and because most civilians can't. Comedians venture out to deliberately push the boundaries of society so our liberties don't get pushed back. It's divisive because it attacks as it should and the ideological provocations and foundational instability it creates is the powerful purpose of comedy. 
with deep love and respect to comedians and with the humble understanding that I will not stop going for it for fear of going too far. Kim. I ended with a quote and it reads, everybody gets mad at me as I say these jokes, but you gotta understand, this is the best time to say them. Now more than ever, you have a responsibility to speak recklessly. Otherwise, my kids may never know what speaking reckless sounds like. The joys of being wrong. I don't come here to be right. I just came here to fuck around. Dave Chappelle. That is a song that was playing in my head when I wrote this next piece called The Event. This is a piece of microfiction that I wrote as a part of that craft class I was talking on the previous episode. And what I like to do sometimes to understand characters is if I'm writing a play or um, whatever narrative it is, I'll go and write auxiliary components to life or instances, uh, events in their life outside of the narrative that I'm showing or presenting. Um, this is a piece, uh, an auxiliary piece I wrote for Break Horizons, a rocking indigenous justice story. Scarlet is a shifter and there's another shifter present and it takes place um, in a dive bar, my favorite place to be. Scarlet stood in the middle of the pub, chugging a Colt 45. She snuck in. With the strobe lights from Spencer's gifts flaring around, she began channeling everyone's energy into the universe. It tasted so good. Bending briefly into the other dimensions, she swam over to the bar. She slammed down the bottle and gave a smile. Born from the original beings, she was a mystic. This dimension has never experienced. For unlike the other transformers locked away in the rocks of the Earth's crust, only able to transmit through vibrations on time, Scarlet rocked and rolled through the laws of the Earth. Fresh from the waters on the Salish Sea, still salty for not getting more. She was celebrating her most recent break in entering. She slams her booty on the bar, loudly clicks her gum. She lures the entire pub on the dance floor with pull tabs and papst. There were nations of knowledge hid inside of her. That's where the copper beings held them. That's where the knowledge of the cosmos existed. Well, half of them anyway. Here's the other part. Harriet, one of the oldest surviving shifters in the universe, enters the world, dressed in latex and Patagonia. These two are entangled. Harriet needs to ignite Scarlet, to get her to remember where she came from, for this was a dark time composed of dark matters. The cosmic state was in full suspension, the waters and ways becoming toxic. Humanity's residue was making the entire universe unstable. Remember the powers inside of you, Scarlet. What? Sorry, I can't hear you! The copper beings could not have predicted that the indigenous femmes would forget to look inside themselves. The music plays. Scarlet slings back her third shot of the night into the cognitive ether. Shot four, she breaks. Shot five, through the fifth dimension. 
slinging her sixth shot of the night, the hope of the world walks out of the pub for a cigarette. She tries to stabilize herself. This is not going to end well. There she is, episode three, season two of the Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, These topics are incredibly important to me. If you are a young Indigenous writer or a new Indigenous writer or an Indigenous writer or creator at all, I wholeheartedly and with all my spirit implore you to refuse the trauma porn trap to figure out your own foundation and frameworks for the world building you must do to create with worlds ideas and characters rooted in culture who creates their own heritage so that you can create compelling ignited urgent and transformational stories and i really encourage you to get people laughing I posted once about comedy uh, being the way into the heart and the spirit because with every joke you pull a brick away of armor we build up to exist and be in the western imperial world and my avenue into people's radical empathy into their heart work into their spirit work is through a goddamn good joke so that's it that's all thank you so much for listening Subscribe on the platforms that you listen to all your podcasts, share on your social media, and shoot me a message if you got any comments or are there any other topics you want me to talk about or really anything I really enjoy hearing from you. From my ancestors to yours, this is Kim Senclip Harvey. Why? Today's postscript was a tweet that I wrote that said, I don't think we honor the sacred Ziploc bag enough. A medicine person will all be like blowing your mind and then say, I got something for you. And then they pull out the sacredness from a Ziploc. Honestly, Ziplocs might be what ties every indigenous nation together. It's Ziplocs or or Cindy Blackstock that truly unite us. (laughs) Hashtag the sacred Ziploc. Peace.